This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, we get a lot of retail politics in the media these days, but less about the politics of retail. The government wants to unlock the big grocery chain's duopoly to bring down prices that are often higher here than overseas. But are our media shining a light on how that business really works or swallowing the supermarket stories wholesale? Also, we talk to a stalwart of Southland journalism who spent years covering local stuff for the local stuff daily, Southland Times. But now he's gone solo with the Southland Tribune, which sounds like another paper, but isn't. So why the change and what's the difference? But first... This was the week that the Prime Minister's purge of problem policies finally put its public media plan out of its misery. Work on the merger of Radio New Zealand and Television New Zealand will stop. There's a clear need for further support for public media, but it needs to be at a lower cost and without the need for significant structural change. That was the Prime Minister Chris Hipkins at the post-Cabinet press conference on Wednesday afternoon where he brought an end to the RNZ-TVNZ merger plan. And even though it was five years, millions of dollars and dozens of high-earning hires and consultants in the making, this was perhaps the single least surprising news story of 2023 so far. The Prime Minister merely confirmed what pundits have been predicting for weeks – that the public media entity plan would be scrapped before the March the 1st deadline to bring it into being, and before they even really settled on a name for it. Last December, the Prime Minister back then, Jacinda Ardern, first signalled that reforms that were diverting ministers from the cost of living and post-COVID recovery would be shelved, and she told Newsroom at the time the so-called merger was not number one on the government's agenda. And if you couldn't join the dots there, the finance minister told his peers to be back after the summer break, ready to murder their darlings. Well, earlier on Wednesday, RNZ's midday news seemed to know what was coming. It's almost certain now the end of the road for RNZ-TVNZ merger, with a proposal to scrap it before cabinet ministers today. And when the end came for the concept that was, for a few short months, known as Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media, it was more like gently putting it out of its misery than the violent swinging of the axe over Chippy's chopping block. But even though the breaking of the merger wasn't exactly eagerly anticipated breaking news, it was one of those rare occasions when RNZ actually makes headlines elsewhere in the media, as it did about two years ago when the RNZ concert controversy broke and the Carol Hirschfeld off-the-books meeting semi-scandal of 2019, or even that time when Kim Hill dissed the little-loved Sounds Like Us campaign on her own show a few years before. Now, the public media plan had problems other than the cost-of-living crisis. The Broadcasting Minister, Willie Jackson, had already made a mess of explaining the policy in a now-notorious TBNZ interview, which also amplified sideline concerns about possible political influence. And earlier in the year, on Media Watch, Willie Jackson had dismissed criticism of the proposed legislation for the new public media entity, some of which was coming from strong supporters of public broadcasting. If we don't do something to ensure the absolute independence of this entity from any forms of government control over and above annual appropriations of funding for public good, uh, then it will not gain the trust of the public. And that came back to bite the minister last month when the parliamentary committee scrutinising the bill rewrote important parts of it. Recent opinion polls also revealed both low levels of support for the merger and little understanding of it, while the umbrella group for private radio called the new entity a monolithic monster that would be bad for the country. 
Now, the formerly fairly non-committal opposition leader ramped up his rhetoric against the merger too as time went by. Lately, Chris Luxon's been deeming it not just a bad idea, but a mad one, as he did that very morning on TVNZ's breakfast show. Sorry, but the TVNZ Radio New Zealand merger is a total, utter, insane waste of money. Well, Christopher Luxon couldn't be much clearer about that. But after the PM confirmed the merger was off on Wednesday, RNZ and TVNZ both put out statements which, among other things, welcomed the clarity from the government. And the government's broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air said it was ready to respond to the change of direction on public media. Now, a large part of its budget would have been going in the direction of the new entity under the government's previous plan. And NZ On Air's chair, Dr Ruth Harley, said in that statement that for 33 years, quality content has been our bread and butter. And can it be a coincidence that she'd echo the very mantra used by the new Prime Minister to precede the policy purge that began that very day? But Cabinet had, less than two years earlier, been persuaded by consultants and an eight-strong group of advisers that the status quo was not an option, and $109 million a year was needed for the new entity. So, apart from the cost-of-living crisis since then, what's changed? Well, there was less clarity about that when the Prime Minister said this in his post-Cabinet press conference. There's a clear need for further support for public media, but it needs to be at a lower cost and without the need for significant structural change. But just how low is the low-cost, no-structural-change option they have in mind? We know that they're going to need something around the kind of $10 million mark in terms of sustainability, and then uh, the Minister for Broadcasting will come back to Cabinet with an overall package that will make sure that we're both ensuring that uh, RNZ can be sustainable, but that also we can look at some of those issues around, you know, um, content gaps, your audiences that aren't having their needs met. So I won't be able to give you a final answer on that, but we know that that sustainability gap could be somewhere between 5 to $12 million a year. OK, so to put it on sustainable footing and then... Yeah, plus, so they have, plus a bit more if to, but, to fulfil. That's right. So they have cost pressures that we would need to meet regardless of whether there was a reorganisation or not. Now that was a bit confusing. It sounded like the government will give a one-off funding boost of up to $10 million to RNZ to keep it in the black and then raise funding again after the budget process by between 5 or $12 million in the year to come. But on Checkpoint... The Prime Minister had different numbers. Don't need extra funding to do that, and that can be between, you know, I think five million dollars in, the, you know, in the early years, and, and that will continue to increase. So, uh, we'll need to make sure that we are funding that. So it's still not quite clear what the plan is for RNZ financially, though it does seem as though a balance-the-books boost of around five million dollars will be coming shortly, and a baseline boost next budget time in the order of ten to twelve million dollars. After that. Now, the Prime Minister also said that the Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson would have to go back to Cabinet now with a new plan for sustainable RNZ funding into the future. The Minister of Broadcasting will come back with a set of proposals that will be about making sure that we're shoring up the sustainability of our existing organisations um, and that will include options for increasing the content, particularly focused at those audiences that are currently underserved. When the Prime Minister was asked last Wednesday if TVNZ will be expected to take a more public interest approach in future, Chris Hipkins didn't rule that out. He told Newsroom there were some things that could be achieved through the government's annual statement of expectations to TVNZ, but he wouldn't discount a charter. 
Now, the last time a Labour-led government tried that 20 years ago, it didn't really work. In fact, all political efforts to hassle TBNZ into moderating its commercial focus have had no lasting impact. Now, given that this merger's demise was so well signalled this week, MediaWatch asked for an interview with the Broadcasting Minister about what comes next. But we were told, unfortunately, the Minister is unavailable. However, regarding next steps, his office said that the minister will now discharge the Aotearoa New Zealand public media bill and refocus on strengthening local media in other ways. In the coming weeks, his office said, Cabinet will consider further advice on providing extra funding to RNZ to, in their words, both secure its financial stability and expand and strengthen its public media role. And the minister will also, they said, be exploring ways to ensure TBNZ plays a more public broadcasting role in future and ensuring funding is provided for all public broadcasting across any platform, including funding through New Zealand On Air. As we heard earlier, this is the second time that this Labour government has pulled the plug on its media policy, leaving RNZ in the lurch. In 2017, Labour went into the election with a policy of boosting RNZ with $38 million a year to become a truly multimedia public media platform, and that policy ignored TBNZ altogether. Back then, the Minister Claire Curran also wanted an independent body to decide future media funding at arm's length from the government. But that policy didn't survive her resignation in 2018. Well now, Claire Curran's former colleagues in the Cabinet are saying that the best option for public media is to boost RNZ on its own and disengage from TVNZ. And that was pretty much Claire Curran's plan back then. So what does she make of all that now? And just how hard is it to convince even fellow politicians of the case for change in public media in the face of scepticism and opposition? Well, we'd love to know, but Claire Curran hasn't responded to our request this week for an interview about that. Well, one who hasn't been shy, though, of giving her view is the opposition broadcasting spokesperson, Melissa Lee, who, if there's a change of government later this year, could well become the next minister in charge of it all. And last Wednesday, she spoke about that on Nights on RNZ National during this week's Midweek Media Watch. I mean, the media landscape has actually been changing for quite some time. And and the thing is that both RNZ and TVNZ have been trying to grapple with the change in the audience um, and the way that they actually consume the media as well. And I think media companies, um, of both public and private, are actually are grappling with that reality uh, to actually bring their audiences or, or to actually get to their audiences. You know, we, we need to actually look at that. On Midweek Media Watch this week, I also talked to Karen Hay about what went wrong with that media policy and what might come next. And you'll find all that on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app or in our podcast feed. Just look for the title, Midweek Media Watch, The Day the Merger Died. And there's plenty more to come on what comes next. We'll follow it all here on Media Watch. So Chemist Warehouse was allowed to open in our mall at that same time, 2020, November. So it was like a double whammy for me. That was pharmacist Sima Rambi Sheswa, who permanently closed the Life Pharmacy store in Auckland's Glenfield last week after she'd worked there for 22 years and owned it for the last 14. And there she was telling Catherine Ryan on RNZ's 9 to noon last Tuesday, one reason was discount chains growing presence in the pharmacy market. The Pharmacy Guild told Nine to Noon that 30 local pharmacies shut down last year 
and 70 have closed in the last four years, largely because of competition from big-scale trans-Tasman operators and also pharmacy sections in supermarkets. Now, supermarkets' share of the grocery market and the way they set their prices have also been controversial issues for some time, and the government's Grocery Industry Competition Bill is its effort to improve competitiveness and choice, including a new code of conduct for its dealings with suppliers and a requirement for them to wholesale products to its rivals. But the big supermarket chains here are now pushing back at claims that their scale skews the market and they need to be pegged back to push down the prices we pay. Hayden Donnell now looks at that and talks to one journalist who's been casting a sceptical eye over how all this plays out in our media. We're all feeling it at the moment. The cost of the household food bill and now new data shows supermarkets are facing price hikes from their own suppliers. That's Daniel Fiatawa of TVNZ's One News introducing a recent report on New Zealand's food prices. Its findings were based on a monthly grocery supplier cost index produced by the economic consultancy Infometrics. Our supermarket duopoly foodstuffs and Woolworths have regularly been accused of profiteering with a recent investigation by the Commerce Commission finding they are making more than $1 million in excess profits per day. But the Infometrics report pointed the finger in a different direction for the latest price rises, pressure from those companies' suppliers. In fact, previous iterations of the monthly report have the duopoly looking pretty generous, getting credit in last August's edition for only putting up their prices 6.1%, well below the 8.7% increase in their suppliers' prices. One News isn't alone in raising the report to the top of its news agenda. It's routinely covered by Stuff, The Herald, News Hub and RNZ. Most of these stories note the index is a foodstuffs infometrics collaboration, but few treat the fact that it's paid for by a supermarket giant as a red flag or reason for caution over its findings. Neither do they include context. The duopoly has a long-standing reputation for using its market power to keep a tight lid on supplier costs and still wields big influence over the prices charged to it. Responsibility for the price rises is instead sheeted home to forces outside its control. This is the headline on the latest index from the Otago Daily Times. Supplier costs still driving supermarket prices. Suppliers aren't the only ones getting blamed in the media for supermarket prices. More recent reports have found another culprit for the rising cost of food. The Security Association is calling for additional powers so they can arrest shoplifters walking out of supermarkets with trolleys full of stolen goods. As Alexa Cook reports, the illegal practice is hitting New Zealand shoppers in the pocket. Exactly how much shoplifting is costing supermarkets isn't made clear in the News Hub report. The lack of hard data doesn't stop it playing up the losses being passed on to consumers. This is Retail NZ's Greg Harford. Ultimately, it's costing every household hundreds of dollars because we're all subsidising this kind of criminal behaviour. Some reporters have kept the heat on foodstuffs and Woolworths for raising prices even as they post record profits. NBR senior reporter Dieter Deboni has interviewed suppliers about what it's like to deal with the supermarket giants. She's also talked to Two Degrees founder Tex Edwards, who points out that Woolworths is projected to raise its margins over the coming years, something that's only possible in low-competition environments. She joined us to talk about whether the media are asking enough tough questions of the supermarket giants, which also happen to be some of their biggest sources of advertising. Kia ora, Dieter. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. So the super 
market duopoly. They've been catching a lot of heat lately. You might have noticed mm. it. So the thing that I have sort of focused on and have noticed recently is this new report called the Grocery Suppliers Cost Index, and that's produced by Infometrics for foodstuffs in conjunction with foodstuffs. Do you have a problem with how that's reported? I think it's been reported in a poor way. Not that Brad Olson's doing anything wrong in taking that data and showing us what that data shows us. Having spoken to many suppliers and having done many, many stories about the way the supermarkets pitch themselves in this environment of price inflation, what I believe is that the prices they're giving Brad Olson to look at are not the actual prices. For example, suppliers pay all sorts of charges for having their products carried in a supermarket. They pay for promotion, they pay for warehousing, which shelf they're in, which supermarket they're in. None of those differences across products, across stores, across regions, none of that is included in that data. So that data is just a top-line price that they say, you know, we pay the supplier X. That is not the true price, in my view. From what I can see, um, there's just so much variation that you can't even do that kind of comparison. Because what you're talking about there is how these suppliers have been squeezed over the years. And this is something that's come through in your reporting. You talk to them and they say, look, we could only put our prices down. And it seems like maybe they've reached breaking point now where they have to either put their prices up or die. That's right. They called it the the catch-up effect. I mean, what's happened is many small suppliers have gone to the wall. Others have managed to squeeze squeeze through an increase after many, many years of being squeezed, as you say. The This does not apply to the large suppliers, you know, the Unilevers, the Mondelez International, all those people, because they've got much more leverage. They don't have to pay all these part charges that suppliers pay. Um, so it's it's a very complex situation and picture of which this reporting gives no hint. Again, Brad Olson, respected economist, known for having yeah. integrity, not a knock on him, but no. should it be disclosed more, made a bigger deal of in news stories that this is a report paid for by foodstuffs? And has that disclosure been forthcoming enough? Has that been analysed enough in the media? Um, no, of course it hasn't. And None of these contextual issues have been. You know, that's a real problem. But, of course, the media is in a bind in that. In a small market, they are huge advertisers. I, and still good reporting comes out and, and things have been said. But it's it's food is such an essential part of people's lives that this should be really front and centre of all coverage. It's happening all over the world where suppliers are at loggerheads with supermarkets about who's going to bear the brunt of the blame for cost inflation. Um, so, But in other parts of the world where supermarkets aren't as powerful, even the Tesco's, the Walmarts, they get pushback. Whereas in New Zealand, it's very hard to find that pushback because the supermarkets have such a stranglehold on all parts of the, the chain. When these things come before the Select Committee, which they did last week, there are so few politicians putting the supermarkets' feet to the fire. And where is the media reporting? When these hearings were heard last week and foodstuffs appeared before the Select Committee, where were people questioning them then? It's too late, you know. We've got the Grocery Industry Competition Bill coming up this year. That's the Select Committee that foodstuffs appeared in. Do you have a lot of hope that that will really change the game? When that debate really comes before Parliament, the media will take up this mantle and apply this kind of really critical eye to uh, competition in the supermarket sector? This should be happening right now. 
Um, people who are competition advocates say that the supermarket should have been forced to divest either part of their wholesale or part of their retail. That hasn't happened here. What's happened is the government has made these suggestions of a commissioner and a code, and they've opened up wholesale, which means that the duopoly have to um, make their groceries available to competitors. But even at that level, the duopoly is fighting back. They're happy with the changes, which suggests that they're not anywhere near strong enough. People like Tex Edwards have called for retail to be opened up, so what he would like to do is see the supermarkets forced to divest their stores to a third player. Um, and he is positing himself as a third player because he's got the funding for a, for a, a nominal third player. But, you know, he's going back to the select committee. Where were the politicians? Andrew Bailey was really the only one that lobbed any meaningful questions, Andrew Bailey from National. And even then they were kind of business-friendly questions. <laughs> um, but at least he showed up and asked some questions. I mean, this was the day Foodstuffs appeared. Foodstuffs is the most powerful supermarket company in New Zealand. And they should have had their feet held to the fire with people who know what they're talking about. I mean, they bought a lawyer, they bought three or four people to submit, um, and they just got absolutely no questioning and no pushback whatsoever. To what extent do you think the lack of pushback, particularly from the media, is because of the fact that the supermarket giants are some of their biggest advertisers? That's part of it. That's certainly part of it, I believe. The other thing is the lack of business reporting in the general media, I think. Business reporting tends to be ghettoised, um, whereas, in fact, it cuts to the heart of this very issue, this very story, and that's one of the problems as well, I believe. You've actually got personal experience of trying to cover the duopoly in a critical way in mainstream media and having more editorial hoops to jump through or more pushback on your story than you usually would, don't you? Yes. Well, last week I talked to Ernie Newman, who was the CE of Two Ends and oversaw the deregulation of telecom. So he's very hot on the supermarket issue. The Herald had run a story by um, Kate McNamara, um, a report that had been done for MB, which showed that New Zealand's duopoly was a distant outlier in terms of competition and profits in the entire world. So the Herald had run this story. Ernie Newman came along and wrote a fulminating um, column about it. They took out a few words that the supermarket didn't like. And I said to Ernie, um, actually, I had a different experience 20 years ago when I wrote a column about the supermarkets for the Herald, that they showed my column to the supermarkets before they put it in in the paper in those days. It's very, I mean, Kate McNamara, Ernie Newman, they know what they're talking about. Foodstuffs then wrote its own rebuttal that was put up, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know if all companies get that kind of treatment, but certainly um, foodstuffs and Woolworths and so forth do. Okay, I put you in charge of covering the supermarkets. You know, you're the czar of supermarket coverage. I think there has to be an understanding of the context. And here again, you do come up against the time pressures and the you know resources staffed newsrooms and so forth. Um, but an understanding of business journalism is important, I think, if you're covering these industries. And, and you know, many of, many of the stuff in the Herald reporters have that understanding, so that's great. But, you know, food, people's being able to eat, being able to afford food, just should be much more prominent than it is. And people have to go at these supermarkets with, with knowledge. More effort probably needs to be made. Thank you very much, Dieter. Thank you, Hayden. That was NBR senior journalist Dieter Deboni talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell.
Last weekend, Waitangi Day was marked like this by TVNZ One News at six. For the first time post-COVID, the beehive descended on Waitangi for the political porphyry. Despite plans to keep politics out of it, there was disagreement over treaty settlements and some took exception to parts of Christopher Luxon's speech. The beehive, of course, houses the executive branch of our government and it wasn't just cabinet ministers who were invited to Waitangi. And just how controversial really was the opposition leader's speech? Well, his description of the treaty as a little experiment did get a reaction, but over on News Hub at 6, political editor Jenna Lynch made a big deal also of what Christopher Luxon wrote his speech on. Are you comfortable speaking without cue cards? Uh, yes, absolutely, yeah, yep, absolutely. I took a look at that and other aspects of Waitangi Day in our media on Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on nights on RNZ National last Wednesday. If you missed it, you'll find it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, you'll find it in the Media Watch section of the RNZ app or in our podcast feed. And finally this week, at the end of last year, there was upheaval at our biggest publisher of papers, Stuff, over a plan to cut the number of reporters at the company's long-standing local dailies around the country and instead cover local stories with staff centred in other regional or even metropolitan newsrooms. The Taranaki Daily News and the Southland Times would keep just four reporters each and the Nelson Mail lost some of its key local news reporters, even though Stuff had said it planned to keep local journalists with lots of experience in those places. One who's also left since then is Logan Savory, a former long-serving reporter at the Invercargill-based Southland Times, and before that at the Otago Daily Times. And after nearly two decades, he's gone, but not to pastures new, still Invercargill, and he's still doing Southland News for the Southland Tribune. Now that sounds like another rival newspaper, but it isn't. It's an online newsletter on the subscriber platform Substack, which was set up a decade ago by another son of the South, Hamish McKenzie, along with some colleagues in Silicon Valley. So why then did long-serving Logan Savory leave the established local daily to go solo online? It was time for a change, but yet I still love my job, so this was just um, about trying to see if there was something a little bit different um, out there that I could create and who knows um, where it might lead to but I just got to the point where I was willing to at least give it a go. It's, it's a hard business now, local and regional papers, even if you belong to one of the big chains such as the Southland Times does. And recently we know they've had a kind of regional reporting rejig. Was that reorganisation one of the reasons that you wanted to take on your own project? Um, it certainly wasn't the sole reason behind it, but I'd be lying to say if it didn't maybe give me a, a push um, when I was thinking about it. Look, I've been involved sort of for a couple of decades, and it's been a huge restructuring right throughout that. And that isn't a slight on anyone because we're in an industry which is pretty tough, particularly for regional journalism. Um, you know, newspaper subscribers naturally declining, um, and at the same time, newsprint costs are going up. So. It, it certainly wasn't the sole reason, but it just got me thinking a bit more about whether we can come up with another potential model that can serve our, the community on maybe a lower overheads than maybe some of the bigger uh, organisations uh, have to operate with. Well, you clearly still uh, love your region, Southland. You've, you've said in the uh, launch edition, we live in New Zealand's shit-hottest region, and the Tribune <laughs> will ensure that's celebrated. But you also said, this was interesting, you said we won't cover everything that moves in Southland. If there's a two-car crash 
on the corner of Tay Street and Kelvin Street. That's in Invercargill. Uh, you won't read about it through, through the Tribune. We're not here to compete with existing daily media outlets. But you kind of are, though, aren't you? Because if there's a good colourful story in Southland, like, for example, uh, you had Sasha Bond, the world record-breaking cheering contractor. You did a great feature on her for the, the Tribune. You, you sort of will be wanting to scoop or at times better the local paper you used to work for? I guess the point is I'm just not we're not trying to replicate what the Southland Times or Otago Daily Times does. Just trying to do things a wee bit differently and with the focus on some of those profile yarns as well as sort of shining a light on business and whatnot. But also getting uh, serious when we need to. I, I suppose the comment about the, the two car crash is that that sort of stuff is still widely covered anyway. So I don't see the benefit in fourth organisation coming in and doing exactly the same at this point in time anyway. So what sort of things do you think you might do differently that you probably couldn't have done at the Times or previously at, at the Otago Daily Times when you worked there out of Invercargill? Just that real sort of parochial stuff around Southland is doing well. Putting a real focus on good profile yarns, some historical pieces may may not have, have written when I was previously in a you know look, as an example one of the first articles I, I did it was a, a, on a nightclub that closed down years ago in, in Vicago and it was quite infamous down here and and then it turned into a um, a school of well gifted uh, kids which was quite interesting <laughs> and I and I put that together and it got a re- really well received and um, maybe that's a sort of story I probably might not have written for some of the other papers. Yeah, I like one of yours, which was a, a review of uh, three cafes and restaurants' lunchtime offerings. Yeah. That's the sort of story I guess you can assign yourself when you're your own boss and your own editor. You know, you could uh, go out and eat three lunches and pretend it's work. <laughs> sort, sort of, yeah, yeah. It was over a, over a period, but you're, you're right. Though those sort of things may not appear in Southland Times or Otago Daily Times. But again, that was something that was quite well received. And I'm working with a bit of a blank canvas, so it's it, it's trialling what you know people are interested in, but also at the same time making sure that the journalism qualities that you'd expect balance fair and, and whatnot are still there, whatever style we're writing in. But you also clearly have other ambitions for this, because, for example, a um, fair bunch of sports stories, and sports was one of your specialities. We know that down the years, regional um, sports desks were were cut back a lot and also the page space for that sort of local sport grassroots coverage. Uh, you also said you'll be keeping an eye on council happenings. Mm. So I was actually the council reporter at the Southern Times before I departed. Um, so I had a natural interest in, in that anyway. Well, I think that it's a real important part if you're going to be a local publication. I think you have a um, an expectation of the community that you're keeping an eye on and that sort of stuff. You know, I keep an eye on pretty much every council meeting, but uh, in the past I would certainly write a story from every council meeting where at the moment I'm just keeping an eye on on where, where things arise or um, a story that might be worth a wee bit more um, delving into. A big part of a community publication is that you are having a look at those people that are in charge of your city. Now you're online on Substack. So with the, another son of the South, I guess we could call him Hamish McKenzie. I guess the Substack... The, the benefit of it is the technology that's attached to it and the systems, you know, right from the actual writing software through to the payment uh, links, everything. So, yeah, if I had to set that up myself, I'm probably doing all right out, out of it, um, given the, the software that I have available and everything 
operation a little bit better. Well, that, that's good because, I mean, there are other journalists who've used the platform. So, But often they've got a specialism. Say, for example, Bernard Hickey now using it as his main tool to communicate uh, with the, his growing uh, list of subscribers. But he's writing about national issues, you know, the political mm. economy and so on. I think you're the first one I've seen who's actually trying to do, you know, hyper-local, as they like to call it, news. And there was always a hope that the internet might be great for that, but the model couldn't be found. So, But it's going to be tough, isn't it? Because it really will be just local people online who will be able to find you and might be willing to contribute and subscribe. There is actually examples. Uh, you're right, in New Zealand, probably the, the first to, to set up a local uh, platform through Substack. Um, there is examples in Australia, one in particular, Murray Bridge News, who really caters for a population of about 20,000 to 25,000 people. And I talked to him about it before I had a go. But he has um, been able to, to get to the point where his operation after a couple of years is sustainable um, through paid subscribers locally, um, as well as some commercial um, partnerships as well. So there is examples in Australia where it has worked. I have no doubt that it's, it, it is tough when you're operating in a market of about 100,000 people. The Murray Bridge News example, that's an even smaller community though, isn't it? Yeah, it's 20, 25,000 people, So, and he has managed to be able to make that work through a lot of hard work too though, so that's, that's uh, what's in front of me. Well, there might be other uh, local journalists in, in New Zealand who'd like to write about their region and possibly would like to do it uh, off their own bat, so it'd be, be uh, interesting to see if it works. But one thing that does puzzle me a bit um, with, say, the Murray Bridge News in South Australia, you mentioned there, yours is called the Southland Tribune. I think it's a very traditional-sounding uh, newspaper masthead mm-hmm. sort of titles. Was it not tempting, now that you're going online only, to have some highly individual name based all, all around you? Or did you actually want to you know, have that feel of a news operation that, that sounded like it had been around since uh, 1866 or something like that? Yeah, that's interesting. I sort of toyed with that for quite a while. Um, I think the reason why we ended up going with that um, is um, to ensure that there is, well, I feel like there is that journalism um, standards about it and the fact that um, it's not just a community blog, there is someone behind it that is based on the principles of journalism and a few people have been puzzled by it, but we're underway and, um, you know, I think it's a good fit for what we're trying to do. What would you count as success? Is there a certain number of subscribers or do you want to at least make a, a living even if it's modest off it or will you be happy just if the stories are being read and shared and, you know, even if people down the track don't actually make that jump of paying to subscribe? Oh, I'm certainly in it to try, um, you know, make a living off it, obviously. It's not a hobby. Uh, well, um, so I need, obviously, some some paying subscribers. Um, and at the moment, we're just in the growth phase. So uh, everything in the content's free, but it's been very encouraging that, obviously, the, the people that have signed up to, to date, and it's probably mean a few more than I thought initially, are obviously doing it because they're backing what we're trying to do um, down the track when we put some paywall stories in there um, and that'll be up to me to produce those stories that people are willing to to, to pay for um, uh, also and amongst that some some commercial uh, partnerships with some of our sections and hopefully from that we can make a sustainable model where yes I can um, continue to make a living from this industry but I'm not naive to, to think that it's going to be it's going to be tough 
That was Logan Savory, a former stalwart at the Southland Times, who's now doing Southland News solo in the Southland Tribune, his own online newsletter for subscribers on the platform Substack. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend on Media Watch, but we'll be back with more on the media next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay during nights with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.